Well, good morning, everybody. So glad you're here. And if you're on our stream this morning, we want to welcome you again. We're so glad that you're able to join us in that way. I know you just were standing, but would you stand one more time as we go before the text this morning? We're going to be out of Ephesians 2. So let's stand. Let's go before God's words this morning. In Ephesians 2, uh, we'll, we're going to be looking at two chunks in chapter 2, uh, 11 through 13. And then we'll skip ahead and look at 19 through 22. Uh, we're in a sermon series called The Church Defined. As we're coming back, as slowly we're able to begin to regather and hopefully set a new normal of, of life uh, here together, we thought it'd be important to say, well, what is it that we're coming back to? Uh, we need to really start uh, exploring as, we're, as we've come back, kind of what it is, is that we're, we're doing here. What is this church thing about? And so we've tried to spend the next, we're going to spend the next six, seven weeks here defining through the scriptures, defining what this thing is that we're doing here. What are you doing here? We're being the church together. We want to talk about what that means. And so if you haven't grabbed a booklet in the back, that's going to explain a little bit more about our, uh, about this series, kind of some of the thoughts behind it, and those six essential marks that we're going to be looking at uh, there. That's also on our bulletin, so if you're looking, watching online, you can click the link, and you're going to be able to see that as well. But before we go before the text, let's uh, say that prayer, that Jewish prayer called the Shema out of Deuteronomy 6. So say it after me. Hero Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11. Paul is talking to the church in Ephesus. He says this, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcised, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away and have been brought, have been brought near, by the blood of Christ. He begins then, he talks about that a little more, and then he concludes in verse 19. He says this, Consequently, therefore, you are no longer foreigners and, foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. July 1st, 2017, in a barn outside of Washington, D.C., in 1,000 degree temperature. You can fact check me on that. 1,000 degree temperature. I actually had the honor of officiating my brother-in-law Tim's wedding. It was a really beautiful, other than constantly for like 12 straight hours, other than that, it was a really beautiful, it was a really beautiful day. And as I think back on that day, I think of, uh, you know, different moments, different, uh, where, where, you know, a real, it was really special. But probably the one I'll remember the most was right before the ceremony happened. It was that moment where we're all sort of in the back. Uh, the groomsmen and I were all kind of in the back. We're about ready to go up front. The ceremony is about to start. Sort of that moment of like, all right, here it is. Right? Like, this is it. We're about to go out and do this thing. And I remember Tim, I was standing next to Tim, and Tim looked at me. I knew Tim, so I came into the family when I married. Tim was uh, a lot younger, so I kind of grew up with Tim. 
And so as we were just kind of having kind of these last words before we went out, he's, you know, he did, he started in on that whole, like, hey, Brian, I just wanted you to know, like, I'm, I'm just really honored that you're here. You know, you've always been like a brother to me and just on this special day. And I like stopped him midway. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. no, no, no. We're not doing this now, Tim. We're about to go. We're not, Tim, we're not doing this now, right? Like, we're all, don't make me ugly cry in front of everybody right now. Let's do this later on, right? Because he just felt it. He felt that there was a, a magnitude to the moment. Really, that's what a wedding is. There's just these deep, holy, sanctified moments when you go to a wedding. So even when I'm not officiate a wedding, you can almost take the bank, I'm going to cry. I'm going to cry at just about every wedding. And if you know me, you know that it, you are not uh, shocked at all by that. Uh, that's just sort of what I do. Uh, just, I, I just feel, I feel the moment. And, uh, and that's what a wedding is. There's a magnitude to the moment. It's two people separating themselves in a new relational bond who seal it in a ceremonial moment who stand before God and witnesses to, to vow for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part. That's heavy. Till death do us part. Why is that so stirring to us? I think it's because you get a sense that something bigger is going on. It, it's not just a party. It's not just two people saying, hey, let's, let's try this thing. There's this sacredness to the moment. And so I don't know what you, I cry. So that's what I do. <laughs> There's something bigger going on. Marriage is a picture of something, isn't it? It, it? it stirs us in some way, and we know that there's something happening here. This is a picture of something else. Now hold that for a second, because we're going to jump into our passage this morning as Paul's going to unpack pack some of this. Right at the beginning of our passage this morning, Paul says this. He says, therefore, remember. He's calling us to remember something. Remember that formally, you who are Gentiles by birth, you who are Gentiles by birth and called the uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcised, which is done in the body by human hands, remember, there it is again, that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of promise. So he says, remember something. I want you to remember back uh, uh, formally. There was, there was a time early on in the Bible where there was this relationship that God had with a certain group of people. He called them the circumcised. These are the Jewish people. This is Israel. God had this special bond with them that he didn't have with you, the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, people like me and likely people like you. He had this special relationship back then, formally, and he called it a covenant. He said, you weren't part of that covenant. That They had sort of an exclusive thing going on over there. They were part of a covenant. N now, a covenant is different than any other type of agreement that we know. It's not a handshake. It's not a pact. It's not a treaty. It's not a contract. It differs in some uh, substantial ways. Let me give you just a couple. A covenant is separated by a relational bond. So Paul is saying, he said, hey, formerly uh, Israel, God and Israel, they had this covenant relationship. And it's different than an agreement or a contract. This was a, this was a sep it was separated by a relational bond. 
I'm getting some work done at our house, and so uh, I've hired a contractor, and we have created a contract for him to do some work at the house. And now built into this understanding, this agreement that we all understand, is that there isn't an ongoing relationship that will happen after the work is done, right? We don't say, like, after the work's done, I'm not going to ask him out for coffee. He'd look at me like, what are you talking about, right? No, this is not, this is a contract. I do the work, you pay me, and then we never see each other again, right? That's kind of how it usually goes. This is, this is what a contract is. A covenant is different. A covenant is separated by a relational bond between the two parties. It's an agreement of an ongoing relationship and that these covenanted parties viewed themselves as partners that were bound together permanently. Permanently. So this is the first thing, different than a contract. A contract, you do your thing, I do what I agree to, we shake hands, and it's over. A covenant is a long-lasting permanent relationship. Secondly, a covenant is sealed by a ceremonial moment. A, a covenant is separated by a relational bond, but it's also sealed with a ceremonial moment. And this is different than any other relationship we have. Think about the friends in your life. If I were to ask you, hey, when did you become friends with that person? More likely than not, you wouldn't have a specific date, would you? You wouldn't say, you know, July 4th, 2007. That's when we became friends, right? Usually, friends develop. You might be able to point to a year or maybe even a season, but very rarely are you going to point to a specific day and be like, that's when we became friends, right? You don't, when you're, hang, when you're getting to know someone, you don't approach them and go, hey, I want to make this friendship official. So what, 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 what do you got free in the next few weeks so we can come together and kind of really uh, ratify this relationship, right? That'd be a major red flag. You'd, you'd probably not want to be friends with that person, right? That'd be kind of weird if they did that. And the reason is, is because we recognize that that type of relation doesn't need a moment. It, it, it develops, right? A friendship develops, but a covenant is entered into. A relationship develops over time, but a covenant is entered into. You can point to a time and a date and say, that's the moment it began. So let's actually go back here. Because remember, we said, Paul said, that formerly, before, God had this covenantal relationship with Israel. And if that's the case, then there was going to be a moment. There's going to be a, uh, it was going to be sealed with a ceremonial moment. So where is that in, this, in the scriptures? Well, let's take a look. In Exodus chapter 19. This is the moment. This is where God brings Israel out of Egypt, and they're in the desert, and then he says, all right, let's define the relationship. It's, it's time to do it. And so he proposes, and I use that word intentionally, he proposes a covenant. He says this. This is God speaking to Moses, but for, for Israel. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, did to Egypt. And how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, there's the word again. If you obey me fully and you keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So... Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. 
the people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Then go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. There is a point in time on that third day, because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all of the people. So this is it. Right? Paul says there was this former covenant. And here in Exodus 19, we see that ceremonial moment. They're about to enter into this covenant. He says, today, this is it. This is going to be it. The third day, the date, the moment, the ceremony, where the covenant will be sealed and the relationship will be ratified. Now, today, we don't have a lot of examples of covenants. We don't tend to live with covenants. We get contracts, right? We get friendships. We get those types of agreements. We get those types of relationships. But covenants are not something we tend to, in our day-to-day lives, enter into. But... The Bible has given us one prevailing picture. Marriage. Marriage is a picture. It's a picture of something. And the Bible throughout the scriptures has carried this image through all the way until today. What's interesting is that Exodus 19 is the same ceremonial process that was used back in those days to signify marriage. Meaning, if you were an Israelite and you heard these words, you would have gone, Uh, God's proposing to us. This is what we do when we get married to each other. There was customs in that day, and God matched the marriage customs and process of that day when he proposes a covenant. Let me just quickly take a look. First, he proposes, right? Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possessions. Hear what I'll do for you, and this is what you're going to do for me. I'm proposing to you. And that's not very romantic. I get it, right? It's not the most romantic proposal ever. You don't say, I didn't say to my wife, you know, hey, I'll take care of you, and uh, it'll be good, and then you're going to be my child. How how about that, right? It's it's not as romantic. We get it. It's a little more general, but it's a proposal. And like I said, customs develop over proposals. Like for us, you know, we get down on one knee. We usually have a ring. Like we have our customs for how we propose, Over time, these customs developed in the ancient Near East, too. Instead of a ring, what they would used to do is they would take a cup. The future groom would take a cup, and he'd offer it to the woman, and he'd say, this cup I offer you. And in effect, what he's saying is, I love you, and I offer you my life. Will you marry me? Now, if she said no, I guess she'd just walk away. But if she agreed, she'd take a sip of the cup. That was her, that was in their day, that was how you signified an agreement to a marriage covenant. You proposed. And then we see in Exodus 19, they consent. They say yes. The people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. Then they make plans to gather under the cloud, under the hoopah. It says, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud. Now the word hoopah means a covering. God covers the area with a dense cloud. If you, if you went to a Jewish wedding today, they practice this out of Exodus 19. They have this cloth covering that represents the cloud of God, his presence 
over and hovering around, uh, over them as they make this covenant. In fact, Ju- all Jews, even to this day, read Exodus 19 as a marriage uh, process and match their own wedding customs based on this. Then they get ready. God says to go to the people and consecrate th- them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready on the third day. See, in those days, what would happen is once you proposed to uh, a bride, the, the, the bridegroom, the groom-to-be, he would go off to prepare a place. And usually a place was kind of connected to that kind of the family ranch, the family homestead. But he would then leave the bride. He would go and prepare a place for them. And while he was gone, the bride would then make herself ready. He would ha- they would wash their clothes, and they w- there was all sorts of perfumes and customs and all sorts of things you do to be ready for when the bridegroom arrived. And then, when the time had come, he would arrive. He would get there. The return of the bridegroom would come. Because God said, because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. I will come. It's a wedding ceremony. Exodus 19. And just as a bonus example, just because I like it, the next chapter is Exodus 20. What's Exodus 20? Ten Commandments. Their wedding vows. This is how Jews for centuries have seen it. The Ten Commandments are God and Israel's wedding vows to each other. Hey, um, you're going to have no other gods before me. We're going to be monogamous here. You're not going to cheat on me, right? Hey, we're going to have a date night every week. I love that one. Hey, once a week, we know life gets big, but once a week, we're going to slow down and really just focus on each other. God actually builds date night into his relationship with Israel. It's, it's their wedding vows. Exodus 19 is a marriage ceremony. And the prophets all throughout the Old Testament point to this. They keep that image going. There's all sorts of examples but between Hosea itself and, and all sorts of different things. Let me show you just one. Jeremiah 2. In Jeremiah 2, he says this. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your—he's talking to Israel here. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride, you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. You you were my bride as we walked through that land together. We see this over and over in the Old Testament and the prophets. You see, a covenant is separated by a relational bond, bond— and sealed with a ceremonial moment, which is most clearly demonstrated in the covenant of marriage. It's our one lasting image we still have that points us to what it means to be connected, the church, to be connected to Christ. How we are to live together and with Christ as our groom. It's our one prevalent image. Now here's where it gets cool. Paul takes this backstory this marriage between God and Israel. And he says this, he says, now through Jesus, God has established a renewed covenant. He wants to renew the vows. And in this renewed covenant, it's not just Israel, the circumcised that get included, but everyone now gets in. Everyone is allowed to be brought in. If you've accepted the proposal, if you've said yes to the dress, you get to be part of this new humanity, he calls it in Ephesians, this new, uh, renewed covenantal relationship through the blood of Christ, through Jesus. Because on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took a cup. And he offered it. He said, 
he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Let's renew our vows. This is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Will you marry me? And then he cut this marriage covenant with his blood in a ceremonial moment on the cross. And now he's off preparing a place for us as we get ourselves ready for the bridegroom to return. Ooh, that'll preach. See, Jesus has invited us into a marriage covenantal relationship, and he calls it the church. This is what the church is. Then Paul gets even more explicit. It's like he's like, all right, if you really don't get this, I'm going to make this as clear as I possibly can. So three chapters later, in Ephesians 5, three chapters later, he gets even more clear about what he's trying to talk about. He says this, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to pre present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they fed and cared for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And I love this next part. It's like, okay, this is a profound mystery here, so I'm just going to spell it out. I am talking about Christ and the church. It's like, it's like he gets to the end, and he's like, okay, no one can say you didn't get it, right? This is what I'm talking about, Christ and the church. You see, this whole marriage thing, he says, it's a profound mystery of two people who separated by a new relational bond, who seal it with a ceremonial moment, who stand before God and witnesses to vow for better or worse, for richer or poor, sickness and unhealth, to love and to cherish till death do us part. It's a mystery. It's an illustration. It's a picture. I'm talking about Christ and the church. See, God establishes it in Exodus 19. He renews it. Christ renews it at the Last Supper, and he sustains it to this day. You see, friends, you don't join the church. You get married into it. You don't join the church. You get married in. Marriage is a picture of the church. God's renewed, redeemed, unified, covenantal people. The church is a covenant community. And because of this reality, if we truly grasp this reality, then there are, th there are things for us to do. This will help us explain then how we are to live together as a covenant community together. It gives us actually an image, a picture, an illustration. That's what it's supposed to do. Here's what it's going to look like for you. Paul says this. Again, now we'll jump to verse 19 in Ephesians 2. He says, Consequently, therefore, as a result— this understanding, everything I've set up, everything I've said, okay, now consequently, this is the result of it. You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members 
of his household. You are part of a marital household now. We are members of his church. And like I said, since marriage is God's given, God-given picture of what the church is to be, we can actually use it as an illustration to help discern together what it means to live into that covenantal community together as we have our relationship with our, our bridegroom Christ. What does it mean for us to come together and to gather and to sing and to worship and to be, well, all of that. What does it mean to be a covenant community together? Well, the same things apply. A covenant community is separated by a relational bond. We have a relational bond that's different than, we're, we're not, con- we've not contracted out relationships with each other. We have decided, we have come together and said, this is a separate, special, a holy, relational bond that we have. Your membership in the church is not a handshake, a pack, a treaty, or a contract. You don't come to receive goods and services and pay for it with tithes and volunteerism. And then when it no longer meets your needs, we never see each other again. That's a contract. God has established a covenant. An ongoing, lasting, permanent bond together. Feel smothered yet? Now, here's the thing. We recognize there are particular situations where this needs to flex, right? When we say till death do us part, we recognize there are special uh, circumstances that uh, that may change. You move, right? Like, we don't expect you to be in covenantal relationship if you live in California. We, We want you to find a new expression of that reality there so that you can fully live into that, right? We recognize that. Or sometimes God does call us to specifically go to another local community because God has called us to go there. I I think of our Fieldstone elders. This is a good example of this. Cliff Miller and Aaron Richbart, members, covenantal members, long-term members of this church. But as we've begun to explore the idea of creating a new expression of this covenantal community in Clarence, and we began to ask people to pray about joining them. They felt like God said, that's where you need to go. You need to go place yourself there and establish a new covenantal community there. We celebrate that. That's good. We see that all throughout Acts, actually. People come in and planting and then feeling called to the next thing. We recognize that. But they're moving from their covenantal place to their next specifically called covenantal place. So we recognize there's times where it flex. Or we also recognize that sometimes the church itself breaks its vows. And there are times when an annulment is appropriate. If there's abuse, if there's abuse, it is grounds for an annulment. And if you've been abused, or if there's a- abusiveness in a particular local church context, th- we are not preaching, well, stay and just endure. No. If there is true abuse, we recognize that that's, that's the case. Or if, if the church has broken their vows by shifting away from the gospel and good doctrine, and we've, we no longer are, are uh, upholding the vows that we've had to have scriptural authority be our, our guidepost in proclaiming the gospel. These are appropriate ways where we'd recognize, yes, a change might be needed. But that's the exception, not the rule. That's the exception, not the rule. The rule is, the idea is, 
the commandment is, is that we, the church, are to be a covenantal community separated by a long-lasting, permanent, relational bond. That we can count that you'll be here and I will be here too. That I'm not leaving. That I'm here for you. Now and always. Secondly, a covenant community is sealed by a ceremonial moment. This is just the, the, the this is just built into what it means to be in covenant. There is a ceremonial moment that happened. It necessitates a moment before God and witnesses where you make vows and you commit. Local church membership matters. Now, this is a sticky topic for some, and I recognize that. And I've heard different rebuttals to this argumentation. Here's some of the ones I've heard. Number one, Brian, you're confusing the universal church with the local church. I am committed to the capital C church. I just don't really want to be a member of a local church. What you're saying is that I am committed to an abstract idea. I'm committed to the idea of marriage instead of committing to a real-life person standing in front of you. I didn't marry the idea of Molly. I, I, I married Molly. I, I uh, married a real person. Yes, I believe in marriage, and I believe in the abstract idea of marriage, but I can only prove that commitment by actually expressing that, living that out in real life. Right? So, so the idea of the, the, the universal church idea doesn't really fly. Right? When Paul is writing this, he doesn't write to a universal, he doesn't just simply write to a universal church. He gets on his horse, I don't know why, I don't know where he how, walks, and he starts planting churches. He starts planting real life, tangible expressions of this universal truth that's happening. Because we commit to the people of the church, not the idea of the church. And so we commit to a, in, to a real life, flesh and blood, people standing in front of us. Local, tangible embodiments of the church. Others have said, well, I'm committed to this church and this home. I, I just don't really want to go through membership. It's kind of like, it's, you know, ceremonial, and you know, I have to meet for 10 weeks, and that's really, you know, I'd rather, I'd just rather not do that. But I'm committed. No, no, I'm committed. That's like two people saying, well, we're living together. We're super committed to one another. We just don't want to go through that process, that whole marriage thing. Like, we don't really want to do that. W would we accept that answer? Or do we recognize there is the, a, a moment, there, there is something sacred about the moment you stand in front of God and witness and say, I do. There's something that happens there that we hold sacred. And so to say, well, I'm committed to this thing, I just don't really want to go through the process, it's, we're living together. I just, I just, we just don't really, we're committed. We're, we're, we're committed. It's just, we don't really want to go through it. You might say, well, membership isn't specifically mentioned in the Bible. That's true. There is no specific, we don't get a five-step program. Uh, Paul, I, it would be great if he did, but Paul just decided that's not needed, that every local community was going to figure out what that looked like for them. We, it's true. We have no specific uh, statement or process for church membership. It's never s uh, specifically stated. Did you know that neither is the Trinity? The word Trinity is not found in the Bible. But the truth is there. 
the concept is there, right? No, you'll, you'll search the pages and you'll never hear any teaching on the Trinity. You'll never hear that, that, that topic ever mentioned. But we see its truth all throughout Scripture. All th- and so we uphold this important, valuable truth because we see how it's weaved into the entire story of the Bible. Friends, membership is weaved. Covenantal, relational bonds and ceremony is weaved within the entire story of the Bible. Finally, you might say, oh, well, I've, I've, I've been here for long enough. I think I've pr- proved my commitment. I- I've been here long enough, right? That's, that's, that's just arguing uh, for common law marriage, right? Like, well, we, you know, after seven years, it, it counts, right? Like, we get to do our taxes together after seven years, right? It, it's, we wouldn't accept that either. We'd say, no, no, there's something sacred about the moment, about making a commitment to real people in front of them before God and say, I do. And again, we recognize that there are particular situations where this needs to flex, mainly if you're new. Hi, if you're new this morning, hi, welcome to Randall Church. We're so glad, we're so glad you're here, right? Talk about not talking about marriage on the first date, right? That's like an immediate red flag. Like, we're not talking to you yet. We're not talking to you yet. So we understand that there's a dating process. We get that, that you need to figure it out. We wouldn't want you to become members today, right? You need to figure out if this is the right place for you, but know that we're not looking to date forever. We want more. What is it? The difference between dating and courting, right? We're, we're courting you. We have, we have deeper intentions in mind. We, we, we want to pop the question. We won't mention it now. I won't, we won't mention it now, right? It's too soon. Too soon. That's, that's another red flag, right? Too soon. But it'll get there. Because we believe the church is a covenantal community. We believe that's what this is. And so we're going to treat it as such. Separated by relational bonds and sealed with a ceremonial moment. We are called to stand before God and witnesses to bow, to vow for better or worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. Because marriage is a picture of the church. I'd like to call the band up as we kind of reflect on this for a second, because it's true. Marriage is a picture of the church, but it's not just a picture for us. It's not just a picture to help us understand how we function in church life. But it's also a picture for the world. It's also a picture for the world. Because this is how Paul ends our passage this morning in in Ephesians chapter 2. He ends by saying this. In him, the whole building, he's talking about us as the church, this whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You see, this church in Ephesus, they they understood temples. Their city held one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of Artemis. She was the Greek god of abundance. Temples were pictures, and they, they were constructed in a way to communicate what the god of that temple was like. So her temple was enormous, its furnishings lavish, lavish, its finishings unmatched.
touched. And it was all meant to invoke a sense of abundance and magnificence and grandeur. The idea is that if a Greek child in Ephesus asked their parents, what is Artemis like? What is our God like? That parent could take the child by the hand and walk him to the temple of Artemis and point it out and say, that son, that daughter, that's what our God is like. Because that's what the temple did. Friends, the world needs to know what our God is like. The world needs a better picture. The world knows what it looks like to bail when things get tough. You can go down the street today and get a membership at the YMCA. And when the programs don't meet your needs or COVID strikes and you can't be let in, you can cancel that membership like that. The world gets that. The world knows what it looks like to leave when something no longer meets my needs. The world knows what it looks like to make conditional commitments with no accountability. They've seen that before. That's their whole lives. And the world, unfortunately, knows what it looks like to have very few people they can count on. That's their existence. The world needs a better picture. So God built a temple, a covenant community, you and me. So that the world goes, I want to know what that, that God's like. Someone could take him by the hand. And I pray, walk into these doors and have him look around. And say, that's what God is like. a display of God who is separate from every other God by the relational bond he seeks with you. It reveals a God who sealed this bond with a ceremonial moment on a cross where he cut this covenant with his blood. And who now we, as his covenant people, embody this life, this countercultural but beautiful life as we live it out together friends the world needs a better picture so let's give it to